Hello, I'm James Chow. I'm the host of the China Current, where we talk about our shared global future. I'm in Paris today, having just arrived from the World Health Assembly in Geneva, where I met with Professor Ilona Kickbush. Professor Kickbush is a well-known visionary and architect in the global health space, and how that links to innovation and also development. She spent many of her important years in her career at the World Health Organization in Geneva, during which she. Was a key designer of the Ottawa Charter, the landmark agreement that gave us health for all. Health for all is still a linchpin in the development world today. So I asked her about her original intentions, how far she feels we've succeeded as a world, and where she anticipates us heading next in a rapidly changing geopolitical landscape. Elona went on to Yale University, where she helped lead the global health program at the medical school, and she also set up the global health program at the Graduate Institute in Geneva exactly ten years ago this year. I first met Ilona a couple of years ago in Shanghai, the Global Health Promotion Conference, which was apt and symbolic given her very storied background. And part of that background is how we began this conversation. We sat down at the Palais, which is the UN headquarters in Geneva, talking about her early years and what then happened after that. Ilona, you've had this、uh, very unusual childhood. Which I think a lot of people don't know about. You grew up actually in India and in my favorite part of the world, not just India, which is Chennai, largely a Tamil community, very intimate, very community-based. What was it like growing up there, and did it in any way inform the work that you've gone on to achieve? Well, I think it's definitely informed who I've become. I mean, then it was called Madras. And、uh, I was thrown in there as an eight-year-old. I didn't speak the language, neither English nor Tamil, of course. I was confronted with, you know, totally new kinds of people. I refused to enter a rickshaw because I said I will not have a person pull me. <laughs> I was put into school and didn't understand a word. I had a wonderful ayah who took care of me and from whom I learned some Tamil words. And then, of course, I went to school there. Then to boarding school with、uh, presentation convent, and it influenced me tremendously. You know, growing up in another culture, my parents had very many Indian friends, compared to a lot of other diplomats. And so, for us, you know, being multicultural, multi-ethnic, etc., growing up like that was just matter of fact. I had lots of Indian friends. So and、uh, also in the boarding school,、uh, that was a mix of nationalities from all around the world.、Uh, our、um, teachers, you know, when you had religion、uh, as a course,、uh, we would be asked each of us to describe our religion. You know, even though it was a Catholic school, nobody was sort of forced into a certain way of thinking. So I think it's just you know totally influenced who I am and how I think, and it's no chance at all that I ended up in international work. You entered India as a family when you were just eight years old. How old were you when you left? I was、uh, just over thirteen. My father died unexpectedly, and we had to leave, which of course was quite traumatic as well.、Uh, but.、Uh, It's、uh, it was you know six very very influential years of my life and、uh, 
So basically I grew up bilingually, which also, of course, structured a lot because later when I was in university in Germany, professors used to keep looking for assistants that spoke English kind of thing, and I was there. So it opened many doors. I earned a lot of my money as a student by teaching English uh, to others. So, um, you know, there's so many dimensions to that kind of childhood. And uh, of course, also growing up in the diplomatic sphere. So initially I said, uh, you know, I never want to become a diplomat. You know, there's all these parties and things and I watch my parents. And then, you know, finally I end up in WHO and one day I sit at home and tell my mother what I do. And then she looks at me and she says, and you said you would never become a diplomat. But well, you're, you're a health diplomat exactly. of sorts. And, you know, in a way that also then, after a long time, of course, influenced me to create this field of health diplomacy and to say you can't just, just talk about governance. You've got to really look at how do countries negotiate, how do they negotiate with others, what are tricks, but what are also you know, uh, rules of, of diplomacy, approaches to that. So, um, you know, of course, when you look back, you always construct a lifeline. But uh, I think in this case, uh, it very much made me who I am. And of course, my father was the first in his family to go to university. I was the first woman in our family to go to university and to go on and have a career. So, you know, there's also those um, family developments, in a sense, that are part of this. And nobody at home ever said, you know, you can't be this. And so when I was small, I sort of uh, had this notion there was only one of two things I could become, either, you know, a sort of high-level German politician or the wife of Prince Charles. So, <laughs> uh, you know, you were still sort of grappling with female identity at that time. Knowing him the way that you obviously did uh, and knowing what you do now today, what do you think your father would say about your life today? On the surface, it seems, if we were to continue that construction of the lifeline, that what you do in public service is not so different from what he gave his life in terms of public service as well. Well, definitely. I mean, of course, there's a big difference because uh, he belonged to a war generation and uh, I'm sure, and that's something I missed that, uh, of course, I lost him before one could have some of those political discussions that are so important for uh, people in Germany my age, you know, like, what did you do in the war kind of thing. Uh, of course, I was able to have them with my mother, etc., but it wasn't quite the same, and uh, I've come to be very much like my father. My mother, when she was exasperated, would always say, you're just like your father. And, you know, for her, that uh, was uh, both hurtful and good, in a way. You know? Were you somewhat a rebel, uh, then? And, uh, well, uh, actually, uh, it was... Uh, my mother was a very emotional person, and uh, I sort of knew, having watched my father, that uh, you could really make her uh, very angry, emotional, reactive, uh, if you stayed very cool, and if you stayed very rational. And, uh, and he was, you know, he was the ultimate intellectual, and uh, that definitely was an example for me. Also, you know, learning uh, how um, staying calm, uh, 
deciding very carefully you know when you say something and how so I think some of those things have remained with me they were both in the family so to say and I think I took some of them into the professional sphere I think he would be quite proud of me I'm sure he would a lot of people are proud of you and they're not related to you um <laughs> You were talking about the skills, the life skills of being able to exercise a calm outward appearance uh, that is conducive to negotiation, for example, and to identifying compromises. Do you think that that is an outdated skill or a more relevant than ever skill in the current and emerging and evolving geopolitical landscape in which we now exist? Well, I personally think it's needed more than ever because, you know, we're seeing an enormous geopolitical shift. On the one hand, we're seeing new types of political conflicts emerge where people do not speak to each other anymore. They do not listen to each other. I think, you know, the uh, productive element of identity politics and, you know, I was part of the women's movement and all kinds of movements in my day has sort of turned also into a losing certain elements that one belongs to a larger entity in a sense a society that you know social solidarity the sort of notion that to some extent i grew up with uh, is is much more difficult to establish and and as all these power shifts happen of course for those who feel they do not have power the uh, being radical, being extreme is you know, part of the strategy and part of the right. Uh, and uh, you do have to fight for your rights. And uh, when you know, I was a feminist, I wasn't always nice and uh, uh, sort of careful. Uh, but uh, I think uh, it needs brokers. It needs brokers, it needs diplomats, it needs people who try and, and bring those positions together. And it needs rules and procedures of governance. And uh, I do think we need to reinvent them. I mean, one partly sees that in the discussion here uh, this week of the so-called transparency resolution. You know, what of uh, negotiations should be totally open, what should be behind closed doors, who should be part of it. I do think we need to rethink a lot of that, particularly in the Twitter age, because, you know, things leak and you know, whatever, so it's better to discuss it openly from the start. But uh, the, this divisive uh, uh, structure in our society is also the use of language, very extreme language, uh, I think is dangerous. And, uh, and therefore, yes, uh, I'm hoping that you know, some elements of diplomacy uh, do uh, come to the fore and that we, we do have these kind of brokers who uh, counteract uh, some of that movement. I do try to play you know, some of that role, uh, but um, it's, it's a much larger societal phenomenon that uh, I think uh, uh, in terms of you know, what kind of democracy, what kind of um, joint decision-making do we want in societies uh, has to be considered very, very carefully. In the early 1980s, that's when you began your career at the World Health Organization. At that time also was this emergence of HIV and AIDS as we know it in its current form. And the global response and the community response did so much in addressing women's rights, all of our rights, including sexual and reproductive rights. In 2019, 
that's now returned in a different way in terms of abortion, the right to choose. Does it surprise you that decades on and after positive transformations, we seem to have taken steps in different directions? I'd say it doesn't surprise me. Uh, I'm uh, worried, I'm shocked, but, uh, you know, I think I come from the uh, generation that really believed strongly that we have a patriarchy and uh, that uh, if uh, we want women's rights and if we want uh, particularly our reproductive rights, if we want others to have a right to their sexuality, whatever that might be, uh, then uh, we have to fight those structural elements. I think over the years, much of the rights debate, first of all, didn't bring groups together, but partly separated them. I mean, we had our fights between the hetero women and the lesbian women and who was the better feminist, but, you know, in the end, we went on in the streets together to fight abortion uh, uh, or fight for abortion rights, for example. But uh, what uh, we're seeing now is really a, a re-manifestation of an ideology that is uh, incredibly patriarchal, in many cases male-dominated, but of course not only by men. We've known you know, many of these movements uh, also have women in them who fight uh, in, in this direction. So this combination of, of populism, nationalism, uh, women's uh, oppression are, are very, very closely linked. And uh, I mean, we had a time like that in Germany. I mean, we're very sensitive to this. And uh, maybe that gives you added nuance. Possibly, yes, possibly, yes. And, uh, and you know, we trying to work through our history have, uh, have seen all the ways in, in which that is done. And you can see like you know the um, advertisements uh, for election of um, the German right-wing populace for example highlighting that uh, their idea is to protect the German woman and that's the very same language that we had under National Socialism protect the German woman from outside influences forces genes you know all that kind of stuff. Very, and, very complex. And it's it's incredibly worrying. And uh, and you know you you see the the strategies. You also see, of course, this dark side of globalization because um, one of my very close friends works uh, in in the area of reproductive health, etc. And they very closely monitored how, for example, evangelic groups from the United States pay groups in Europe to start uh, the anti-abortion debate, etc. So it's not just, you know, something just with populism and Bannon traveling all around the world. It's not something also that just, let's say, you know, comes out of society. We have to see that it's it's clearly um, a, a movement that is planned, that is financed, incredibly well financed. But you see that and also... And we're not really ready for it. You see that also in Asia. I mean, I'm a Christian. I grew up that way. I still am Christian. And, and yet you can see very clearly uh, what you said, the influence of the evangelical movement in parts of Asia. 
I mean, it's it's very very strong, and I'm sure it's not restricted to Europe and Asia. No, Africa well. is a very very strong example how these groups, you know, and if you look at the laws in some of the African countries against gay people, against people with other sexualities, uh, it is shocking, and uh, and of course it reflects itself in discussions here at the World Health Assembly and other uh, WHO discussions like in Astana it reflects itself in the Security Council. So you can see, you know, this is high-level politics. This is really part and parcel of a, a certain ideology and a certain way of seeing the role of the state and uh, the decision that men take over the bodies of women and over the sexuality of other people. You led global health promotion for many years and in fact you constructed it in the modern sense or in the only sense that we know it. Um, you were the architect of the Ottawa Charter and I think I met you first, I'm pretty sure I met you first um, in Shanghai at the Global Health Promotion Conference when you spoke on the uh, closing plenary I think it was. Uh, China is now the second largest economy. I was checking it's only 103 on the global gender gap report produced by the World Economic Forum. It's so progressive and innovative when it comes to transforming the wealth of its people and pulling people out of poverty. Yet in some ways, there's a big gap when you compare it to other achievements. Where's China going to be going forward in the spaces in which you interact and not just health? Well, first of all, China is already a global power and we will see also that in the sense of soft power, cultural power, etc., it's going to exert much more influence uh, than uh, people might even be aware of now. I mean, it, it starts on so many dimensions, be it, you know, Chinese films, fashion, uh, thinkers, you know, all that kind of thing and, of course, the new Silk Road or the Belt and Road is the connectivity mechanism to do that. And uh, so I, I think uh, some of the uh, thinking in, let's say, the Old West is, is not yet quite, uh, has not yet quite caught up to what's actually happening here and combining, you know, the uh, the strength within, you know, basically one generation that China has developed politically, economically, technologically, and of course here also because uh, it does not have certain restrictions that you would find in our Western democracies on how you develop digital, for example, or artificial intelligence. So uh, we are going to see a world that is much, much more influenced by China. I think it will be done. Uh, much more uh, softly uh, than, you know, a sort of uh, pressing certain attitudes on people, uh, like we know from other great powers. Uh, that, uh, and uh, one will need to see to, to what extent, you know, how China wants to use that power. I mean, it's, uh, it's a big global discussion on uh, uh, it's an attractive now political system since uh, for many developing countries because uh, it uh, seems to, you know, have developed more rapidly. If you look at some of the old democracies, people say, you know, what's happening there? Look at the debate around the European elections right now. 
So, um, so I do think uh, that uh, China, I think itself, at least I find that in global health, hasn't quite decided or at least hasn't quite told us uh, how much it wants to lead in this area. I'm surprised it's not leading more, uh, both, you know, also financially, but uh, it's, uh, but, you know, having worked for over 10 years in China on global health diplomacy and actually having trained a fair number of the global health generation in, in, in China, I've, uh, I've also watched with, with interest how, how carefully they move, you know, they, they don't just jump into something, they analyze it very carefully, they analyze pros and cons, they test it out, they watch others. And, uh, and so we'll, we'll see, I expect in the next five years to hear much more from China in, in global health. Are they similar to Germans in that way, in the sense that the preparation, the analytical approaches to some extent, yes, uh, even though, you know, for uh, Germany, it was uh, this uh, real need to strengthen the commitment to multilateralism. And that was you know, also, of course, linked to our German tradition, because uh, we want to be embedded, given all our history, in multilateral systems. We want to be embedded in the... European Union, we want to be embedded in the global system that, you know, doesn't mean we're always nice or Germany doesn't want any power or this, that and the other, particularly in terms of economics. Uh, but, um, but one, uh, you know, one doesn't want to move unilaterally because unilateralism hasn't helped Germany at all historically and the rest of the world also not. So uh, I see China in that sense uh, Probably they understand multilateralism also differently to some extent from Germany and, uh, and are looking to a new multilateralism, which I think, you know, some analysts say China's actually, this is the testing out bit, uh, establishing a kind of parallel multilateralism, you know, the parallel of the economic institutions it's helped create, the parallel of, you know, the Silken Road, so it's doing that while remaining in the classic uh, institutions, uh, but staying out of uh, institutions that are, let me say, the, the old-fashioned donor-recipient. So, you know, China hasn't played a very big role in the Global Fund or something, and talking to some uh, Chinese representatives, they said, you know, for us, that's an old-fashioned organization. We don't, you know, believe in that division. And, uh, of course, for political reasons, they want to remain a developing country, fully <laughs> understandable, and parts of it clearly still are. But uh, it also shows that those kind of definitions just don't work. And, of course, you exert power, influence uh, in, in so many different ways that um, uh, those divisions... Uh, don't hold and also doing that just in economic terms, you know, low income, high income, whatever, uh, doesn't take you any further either because uh, the, uh, the action possibilities that China has are, are extraordinary. And uh, I think we'll probably see that play out uh, in the World Health Organization also after 
another five or six years possibly. You, you, you say that you've trained many of the current generation or the emerging generation as well of global health professionals in China. What are young Chinese like to you? Well, I found it an extraordinary experience because they changed so much in those 10 years. You know, the very first um, cohort was uh, was still quite shy, inward-looking. We discussed, you know, what could China, every time we had a session, you know, what should China's role in global health be? Should China have a global health strategy? And practically with one voice, they all said, we need to make health in China better. That will be, you know, given how many we are, that will make sort of statistically in the aggregate, you know, such a big contribution to global health, like with poverty reduction, that, you know, that will be a major role. I saw over the 10 years that they got much more interested uh, in discussion, in debate, which was great. Uh, they uh, also started to see that China has a role with others and of course in that they built on the Chinese tradition of you know the medical doctors and nurses they had sent to Africa for a long period they started seeing that one could build on that but that one needs to change it uh, and uh, then they started to get interesting in you know how does one work in multilateral organizations? How does one, big discussion, should China have a development agency? And you know, that took 10, 15 years, and now you know, there is such a thing. Uh, so that was, uh, that was fascinating, and such you know, clever, brilliant young people. And the, the longer we worked there, I mean, it was a co different cohort every time, so it reflected what was happening in China that they contradicted you much more frequently. They asked tough questions. They didn't just take it as, as a given. And uh, it was a, a fascinating experience. And by that time also, more of them had had opportunities to be parts of delegations, you know. So they brought experience in. We had more uh, Chinese faculty we, we could pull in and rely on. And that, of course, was a strategy that We'd started with Peking University and then, you know, slowly took ourselves back and, and they sort of took it over. I need to link that to global youth. A couple of times you used the phrase, uh, my generation. Uh, Ilona, I think you're uh, predating yourself. But in fact, in many ways, you are more linked and connected and shaping the youth today than probably anyone else in global health. Uh, you have not only shaped our opportunities as a world as we know it, but also you uh, led over at Yale and now at the Graduate Institute here in Geneva, which I think is just a couple of steps away if we come out into the garden here at the Palais. What do young people ask you? Because obviously they turn to you for experience. There's no replacement for experience. What do they want to know from you? Well, uh they want to know about leadership and uh, they're very interested to hear sort of particularly the young women of course you know uh, what was your career what decisions did you take uh, uh, how did you become a leader i think that's uh, a question along many dimensions you know global health leader a women's leader uh, things like that so that's really important for them I think also from the questions they ask, a kind of contextualization, 
a sort of uh, putting it in a historical context also, you know, is that what we experience new? Is it different? Uh, what, uh, what can we learn from previous experiences? You know, like the young people active in NCDs are asking, what could we learn from the AIDS generation? Uh, and uh, so uh, it's uh, it's very much you know what can we learn about uh, about politics and structures, and young people in particular are of course interested in other economic models of society. They're interested in the determinants of health. So many of them have taken up this notion of the commercial determinants. And I mean, what for me was an extraordinary experience uh, when. You know, in sort of, I started getting upset that I sat on these uh, panels with all these men all the time and started that Twitter list on women. And uh, then, you know, this group of young women... I didn't make that list, did I? <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, again, it was interesting, you know, to add a list of 100, 200, 300. And then I said, we're not doing this anymore. They need to be, in quotes, nationalists. They need to be regionalists. You've... You know, you've got to take this on, and this led to a group of young women, uh, which became Women in Global Health, uh, to take this up. And uh, it's you know also full of these young women who've uh, taken uh, the whole issue forward, are doing the counting here, are doing analyses there, and uh, and so you know that's been a wonderful experience. On the one hand, where a personal political frustration of mine. Has, uh, has led to something in, incredibly encouraging. And meanwhile, of course, there's many such initiatives like the one you mentioned with, with 5050. And of course, you know, there's the Women Deliver initiatives and, and all of that. But, you know, I, what I've always then tried to do is, um, you know, make room for, for the younger people to take over and... Uh, and run things, uh, and uh, and you know I'm quite good at letting go. And when you're they need quiet, me, I'm there. You're a quiet force. And uh, well, I'm there to be supportive, and I'm there to give ideas. And as I said, you know, my whole life has been, or particularly you know, this important period of my life uh, during my studies and early professional career, has been about social movements. So I I have a sort of a strong belief in them and um, some experience to share. What will be the last experience to share then in our conversation? We're sitting in this glorious yet intimate room. Anybody who comes to the Palais, it's Salle number 10. It's always been my favourite and I always like coming here and taking pictures. Um, but it's only one component of a much larger building and the building is home to the world. And this week especially, the world came here for the Health Assembly. What's one experience that you would share, given that you were born German, but you really are of the world, but you've also helped make the world? What's one experience that you would leave us with? Well, it's difficult to take one experience. It's just, you know, sort of looking back to say how gratifying it was for me with all the frustrations it also brings to work in the multilateral setting that uh, you know how valuable it is and uh, 
with all the slowness it sometimes has and uh, with all the political fights it often has, it is such a, a valuable thing. And looking back at 70 years of WHO and the UN and just uh, two days ago I was roaming around the building a bit like you and I came across the, the bust of Eleanor Roosevelt and uh, thinking you know, how people like her laid the basis uh, in terms of such multilateral institutions. I don't think one you know, should idealize the liberal world order or something like that, uh, also given our earlier China discussion. But I think you know, this uh, protection on the one hand and innovation within multilateralism because yes, of course, you know, we need the young voices, we need the women, we need civil society voices. To some extent, uh, we need private sector voices, not in terms of lobbyist influence, but in terms of you know, taking innovation and economic development forward. I think we'll start to need a new terminology also, uh, and both in diplomacy and how we express things. I'm, happy that we're talking more about well-being than we're talking about health that you know we're starting to question gdp and saying you know like in new zealand is there such a thing as a well-being economy a well-being budget and i think uh, you know we've got to take up the calls of the young people who are fighting for climate uh, and uh, and these things, you know, must, must change the staidness of this. But uh, over one's own life, one learns to appreciate that uh, there is a reliable place where these kind of conversations can and must be held. That place must be a bit more open, a bit more lively, in some cases even more democratic. But uh, I think we've got to protect it like hell. And if we didn't have the United Nations, if we didn't have the WHO, I think uh, we would be, you know, in a very bad world indeed. And uh, that's what my experience showed me that, you know, sometimes it takes time. And we'll talk about that afterwards when we have discussion around health promotion on the panel. Uh, everyone remembers that Mahler said primary health care. Practically no one remembers that Mahler was also the architect of health promotion. I didn't know that. And, well, he was the one who said, Ilona, do this, and the outcome. And he was part and parcel of it. He looked at every word that's in the Ottawa Charter. And, uh, and that's also his legacy. And so, you know, now, 35 years later, here we are. And yes, I think that's what we need to do, health, wealth, well-being, and take that forward. Well, as you said, we're going to move about two doors down, probably about 15 meters. I'm going to moderate the last technical briefing on healthier populations. But more importantly, I think a few hundred people will be waiting there to hear you speak in the way that you have today, which is sharing your generous insights and framing that with the social justice that underpins all work in health. Ilona Kickbush, it's been a real delight to sit here and to listen to you today. Thank you very much. Well, thanks a lot for inviting me and it's a wonderful conversation. You have a very nice way of asking questions, so it makes it easy to answer. We'll do it again. Yeah, thank you.
Thanks for listening to the China Current. You can find our weekly podcasts on all your favorite platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. You can also go to Facebook for all of our videos. Click like and subscribe. Thank you very much.